Randy Weingarten is part of an increasingly rare species, a high-profile union leader in America. On the line with us, Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers. Which represents 1.7 million educators and school staff. Let's be clear. Critical race theory is not taught. You've seen her on the news advocating to keep schools closed during COVID-19. Randy, we haven't seen you in a while. And and more recently, to reopen them. 85% have said that they would be comfortable being in school. She's talked about teacher contracts, the state of the labor movement. If the banks can get the help, if the 1% can get the help, what about the children of this city and the people who educate them? And at a time when powerful companies are blocking workers from joining unions, when long-standing unions are bleeding membership, unable to hold on, Weingarten stands out as the leader of a union that is growing. 1.5 million. 1.6 million members of the A. She's the president of the American Federation of Teachers, which represents 1.7 million members. People want to be organized, and they know that they need to have a real voice. And the only way they have a voice is through a union. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. Today, meet Randy Weingarten. Decades into organizing teachers, she represents more people than some governors do. An intensely private person, she talks with me about when she chooses to let her personal life come into the public eye. We revisit her coming out story, as well as her experience as a survivor of sexual assault. And she explains how she has won over billionaires and politicians like Michael Bloomberg by always coming back to the table. The power of people working together with the same goal, that's collective power. That's pretty important to change hearts and minds in the narrative. Randy Weingarten is the first openly gay person to become president of a national labor union in the U.S. She says growing up in the 1970s and 80s, she found herself living a double life. You just get good at it. Um, and there were times during that period of time, you know, where I would confide in friends and confide in others who rejected me. Were your parents among those who rejected you at first? Uh, they were not happy about my being gay, no. Mm-hmm. Did they reject me? No. But were they happy about it? No. Would you be comfortable telling me your coming out story? Uh, uh, sure. You know, I um, realized that I was a lesbian when I was in high school. But what I did was I essentially did a two-track coming out meaning the people who, you know, were in the community that understood and knew. And then there was, you know, the broader public life. Following in her mother's footsteps, Randy Weingarten became a public school teacher. She'd also gone to law school, practiced labor law, and became the right-hand woman to her union's president. You know, in New York City, there's always lots of rumors about lots of things. Mm-hmm. Um, but <laughs> I, I do remember that there were rumors 
about um, my being gay. Mm -hmm. And I uh, remember conversations about whether or not a lesbian could be successfully the leader of the UFT, the Teachers Union in New York. A couple of people uh, came up to me and asked me whether I would consider getting married to someone else who was gay. To signal that you're straight, in other words, marry a man. Yeah, marry a man. And, Uh you know, so that I would have a beard. And Uh I used several curse words, Uh (laughs) said emphatically no. Uh And then I went and talked to several of my um, Hmm. compatriots and made it clear that if there was any interest in me hiding who I was, I was not interested in being the president of the UFT. Hmm. I was not hiding who I was. Randy's sexual orientation did not prevent her from becoming elected president of the Teachers Union in New York, the United Federation of Teachers, in 1998. And at one key juncture, she had to remind her union that she is queer when there was a pretty heated internal debate. Our nation must enact a constitutional amendment to protect marriage in America. Same-sex unions are legal in the U.S., but back in 2004, just 17 years ago, President George W. Bush was pushing a constitutional amendment to put a stop to them. Leading Democrats were on board with him, like John Kerry. Uh, The president and I share the belief that marriage is between a man and a woman. I believe that. It was a hot-button issue in the culture wars. The fact that this small group, and it's a tiny group, 1% of the population lesbian, 2% homosexual, are trying to impose that lifestyle on the rest of us to destroy marriage. People in the teachers' union were torn. They did not know which side to publicly endorse. They talked about putting it to a vote, to members. And I'm listening to this conversation, Mm -hmm. and I finally say, with all due respect... If this resolution gets to the floor, I am not only not going to refer it, I'm going to take the floor of the convention and talk about why we must defeat it. Mm. How dare you have this conversation right now? Mm. Do you understand what you're saying to people who are gay, who are members of our union? Do you understand what we're saying to kids? I was not going to be a second-class citizen in my own union. You know, in some levels, I deluded myself to thinking, well, everybody knew, so why would I have to say it? Mm. But saying it and taking ownership and agency is different than just acting as who you are, or at least in terms of coming out, at least at that moment in time. And so these two really key moments you're describing in your coming out, telling the people at your union first as you're rising in leadership, no, I'm not going to marry a man. I am who I am. (laughs) If I could sing, I would have sung it right now, but I can't. (laughs) You can karaoke that one. Um, Exactly. And the second one being 
that when your leadership wants to have some sort of internal debate about whether or not to support um, a potential proposal around or against uh, same-sex union, you're basically like over my dead body. So these two different moments of iteratively coming out, what I'm seeing is that in each decade, in each context, you're out front. That doesn't change. No. What you're saying about it's okay so long as you're willing to live with the consequences of your actions. What do you mean by that? I mean, so when you say out front, you notice, you know, this is part of who I am. Mm -hmm. I don't wear my sexuality on my sleeve. It's who I am. Mm -hmm. It's not what I do. Mm -hmm. And so what I mean by it is you have to be able to look yourself in the mirror every day and be okay with what you see. Mm-hmm. You know, the hiding that I did in the 1970s and the 1980s was really painful. And part of what I learned is not to hide. These moments, I'm very grateful for them now. Um, it didn't mean that I wasn't scared at that moment and didn't think that they could go sideways. But it sounds like you had that conversation with yourself of, if it goes sideways... I'm willing to live with that. The consequences. Yeah. Like maybe I don't want the job of leading the United Federation of Teachers badly enough to hide who I am. I mean, I'm going to say this about power over and over again. You don't want power for power's sake. Or at least from my perspective, power is a way to empower. It is a means to an end. And I often think about any job that has power as you are a fiduciary for that moment in that job and you have a real responsibility to build power for others. Randy Weingarten's Twitter feed is dedicated to politics and policy. Her Instagram is inactive. The last post, more than a year ago, was a picture of a delicious-looking Thai fusion cocktail, which is to reiterate a point she's made. She is a public figure, but a private person. Many years ago, Randy publicly shared a devastating personal experience that I wanted to discuss with her because it's so resonant. Sexual assault. And heads up to listeners, this conversation is not graphic, but it is a painful memory. In her college years, Randy Weingarten had an internship at a General Motors plant in a small town in Ohio. She didn't know anyone there. A family she met at synagogue started inviting her to Shabbat dinners. They wanted to fix her up with someone. So some guy shows up at one of the dinners, and then we went on a date. And I said no, and he continued to assault me, and I figured mm. out a way out of it. I, I Thank God I had money, and I had, you know, I could get a taxi, and I um, left. But, you know, it was a pretty awful situation. Weingarten published an essay about her assault in 2014 in Jezebel, before the rapid acceleration of the Me Too movement, which is to say, it felt early. But it turns out she spoke about this assault even earlier, decades ago, in an entirely different context. 
In the 1990s, Randy was a teacher, and she was leading a group of high school students through a debate tournament. They did not win first place. They were devastated. And here's how Randy's longtime collaborator, Leo Casey, described the moment. So Randy and I brought the students together, and Randy told them the story of how she had been sexually assaulted when she was young. And she talked about how she had recovered from that. It revealed herself to the students in a way that made her very vulnerable. And the students, I think, understood that and really appreciated it. Um, And it, it gave them some real strength to deal with their own severe disappointment at that moment. Why did you tell the students that story? Leo and I taught at a school called Clara Barton High School for the Health Professions in Crown Mm -hmm. Heights, Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. Our AP Gov class was all black and brown students, mostly from the Caribbean, mostly working class. And these kids had won this debate competition in New York City against, you know, private schools and other public schools, including those who were perceived as, you know, better academically. Mm -hmm. They had won the state competition against schools like the likes of Scarsdale. And we were in the national competition. And we were representing New York State in a competition on the Constitution and the Bill of Rights Mm -hmm. with lots of kids whose parents were immigrants to the United States of America. Mm-hmm. And, and they came in fourth place. Mm-hmm. And instead of seeing it as a triumph, these are kids who, you know, when we started the year, they would look down, they, you know, mm-hmm. Constitution, Schmanstekusen, you know, it's like, what the heck is the Constitution? <laughs> and it's then like, they had ownership over it. Over the course they had of, such ownership yeah. over mm-hmm. this. And they did great it's not Mm -hmm. as if they didn't do well yeah Mm -hmm. and and so they were just devastated and I felt like I needed to tell a story that would make me really vulnerable to them that they would listen to that could help create some turnaround instead of the despair that they were feeling amazing and so you told them about your sexual assault Right. And I, you know, I did it in an appropriate way, no, obviously. No, of course, of course. And, you know, they were 12th graders. It's not as if, you know, I clearly would not have done this if they, no, were, if they were younger. It, I understand yeah. that there's nothing age inappropriate about it. In some ways, I'm removing myself from your horrible experience of being attacked and then also removing myself from these 12th graders who are mourning their loss as only number four in the entire competition. Exactly. <laughs> thinking about like the mechanics. <laughs> Of vulnerability. Yeah. Because it's like, I don't know, Randy, in that moment, like, I can't imagine pulling from my stockpile of deepest wounds to share them with a group of people. One of the things that my kids said when I taught, which I've always took with me, was they would say to me, You don't just talk your talk, you walk your walk. Mm -hmm. All too often in America, 
people do not walk each other's walk. Mm-hmm. They don't have each other's back. There's not a shared sense of empathy or a shared sense of working together, living together, engaging together, mm-hmm. and trying to figure out a way to just meet these kids' needs. Um, and that's what I felt like we had to do there and why one had to reach to some level of vulnerability because they couldn't imagine that Dr. Casey and Ms. Weingarten would ever feel the depths of what they were feeling. Hmm. <laughs> You're like, we're going we're gonna to go deeper in this pool. Is where we would have, after they went to sleep, we would have gone to the bar and celebrated because we thought it was such a great accomplishment. <laughs> <laughs> That's the other layer too. It, 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 what's so funny about this act of vulnerability is like you're lifting the spirits of kids who are being incredibly hard on themselves, but objectively did very well. Exactly. Yeah. But it also raises, you know, this is who teachers are. We want to be able to empower teachers to have the freedom and the agency to do the work that they want and need to do to help kids thrive. This is who teachers are. I'm not unique in that way. You create power through a union to give Mm -hmm. autonomy and agency to the people who are doing that work. After the break, Randy Weingarten on how she won over a prominent adversary, billionaire New York City ex-mayor Michael Bloomberg. We'd always go to the same little restaurant, and I knew that, you know, there was a better relationship when we started eating out of my plate. (laughs) From WBEZ Chicago, this is Art of Power. I'm Arthi Shahani. I want to talk now, Randy, what I describe in shorthand as the tenure debate, um, but it's about <laughs> a lot more than that. But- I mean- The tenure debate, as opposed to that he and I negotiated a 43% increase in pay for educators. We can, we can see this and we can frame this in a lot of ways. I get that. I get that. He is then New York Mayor Michael Bloomberg. And the tenure debate was an all-out public relations war. Paid to do nothing while the Department of Education investigates. And what this comes down to is the fact that you have a a policy known as tenure. It's impossible to fire bad teachers in New York City. First of all, it's not that hard to fire a teacher. Mayor Mike Side argued that Randy's union was helping bad teachers hold on to good jobs. Teachers who managed to get through the first three years got tenure for life. Randy's side argued... It's been repeated so often that many people think it's true. Bad teachers cannot be fired because they have an ironclad fortress called tenure. It's simply not so. Teachers deserve due process. They should not get fired arbitrarily. It's not impossible to fire teachers. And the real issue is that they are woefully underpaid. You end up evolving your position from in the early 2000s saying, my members would never agree to getting rid of tenure or to changing the system as it stands 
And by, you know, 2011, you say, yeah, tenure needs to be reformed. Well, I don't quite remember it that way, but, you know, we, meaning from every contract I negotiated from 1987 on, we changed the tenure rules in New York State to make them fairer and faster and in New York City to make them fairer and faster. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure that my position has evolved. I'm I'm not saying that I don't think it has evolved. I think that if you're a sentient individual, lots of things evolve lots of times. Fair enough. I talked to longtime labor journalist Stephen Greenhouse. He told me Weingarten was, quote, resistant to weakening tenure protections because she didn't want to go back to the old days when teachers had no protections. Randy, Mayor Mike, and just about everyone else in New York agreed. The public schools are broken. For two decades, graduation rates hovered around 50 percent. Buildings were dilapidated. Who got promoted was chronically based on patronage, not merit. But the sides disagreed about the cause of the problem. Weingarten thought teachers care about students the most and need to be empowered. The Bloomberg administration thought we need to discipline each teacher into higher performance and reward or punish based on, say, student test results. They basically didn't want teachers to have a voice, and they basically wanted teachers to be seen and not heard. And they focused on the tenure battle because they thought if they could get rid of tenure, they could get rid of seniority um, and have an at-will employment situation. They thought that this way they could just shake teachers up and then things would be much better. It was very much teacher as automaton as opposed to teacher as sentient individual who cared about kids and needed the skills and knowledge to be able to do her work. And so what I'm interested in, Randy, when I talk to your colleagues, when I talk to Steve Greenhouse, who's been reporting on you for decades now from the New York Times, what I get from them is Randy is this fascinating leader who is stuck between what her constituency wants the teachers, what they want, and on the other hand, what politicians want, and then how public opinion shapes up and forms and changes on you as you're fighting your fights. You're in the middle of that. And sometimes you have to make decisions that piss off your teachers, but you see as necessary to preserve the overall well-being of the group. So I actually see it differently than that. Okay. I, but but I understand why I understand why That's people, the spirit of my inquiry. Yeah, yeah. yeah I understand okay. why people on the outside would see it this way. What happens in terms of education is that education is a public service that everyone needs and wants. Mm-hmm. And what I often am is a translator. Mm-hmm. As opposed to Someone who is... An emissary from one side. Emissary from one side to the other. Mm -hmm. Because at the end of the day, the way that things are going to be better is if there's an alignment. And what has happened over the course of the last um, 30 or 40 years Mm -hmm. is that, you know, there have been questions about whether public education, Mm -hmm. and there's also been questions about whether a labor movement 
And yet the people who are in the labor movement, um, like teachers, really know they need that voice and agency. But, but some labor leaders, you know, think about the work that we do as, you know, strictly work that benefits the uh, people you represent. Mm, and, and you don't you see it that, that way. You, you, you distinctly that. don't see it yeah, that way. I distinctly don't see it that way. And I have never seen it that way. So what happens, though, is you represent your members and you have to make sure that there's real support and agency. After all, when your members feel empowered, mm-hmm. it's it's it it's the win-win situation. Mm-hmm. So I so I think what what happens is that teachers want what children need. Some people think that that's a soundbite. Some people live by that creed. The v- majority of my members live by that creed. Mm-hmm. But the people on the outside world like a Mike Bloomberg you know, has never walked in the shoes of teachers, doesn't understand that people choose to be teachers not to get rich, but to actually do the work with kids. If I had the ability to just design the system and say, ex cathedra, this is what we're going to do, you would cut the number of teachers in half and double the class size with a better teacher is a good deal for the students. And to be clear, it wasn't just Bloomberg. It was the person he appointed public school chancellor, Joel Klein. Now, I agree with the mayor that we want to make sure we focus on all our schools. It's not just charters. Right. I, you know, you got lots of kids. In- Mike Bloomberg took over the schools and he put Joel Klein in charge. Mm-hmm. And probably the most important conversation that I had with Joel Klein was about what is the pace of progress? And Joel Klein wanted to be a revolutionary. By that, she means he set out to bring in a fleet of charter schools, that is, competitors to the very school system he was supposed to be improving. My first position is that we ought to ramp up charters, the KIPs and the uncommon schools and all of them. We ought to grow them. I think it's a more challenging set of questions. And I said that the pace of progress in a place like New York City is, you know, steady. I probably use the word incremental. And he thought that that was ridiculous and wrong. And so they made a major public push uh, to essentially undermine the way in which teachers were viewed in the community. You know, we have 75,000 teachers in the public school system, and most of them are the best group of teachers anybody's ever put together. Not everyone. There are some who can't do the job, and we've got to help them and try to chain them and make them better. We have a big investment in them. And then there's some that just either can't or don't want to work and uh, can't educate our kids, and those are the ones that we have to find a different career for. Um, And at the very same time, as teachers needed a significant pay increase uh, because we were losing teachers left and right. That we were, you know, teachers were paid 25, 30% less in in really in a really hard situation. I mean, it was it's hard to teach in New York City, it, mm-hmm. and the conditions were not very good, and we were still recovering from the fiscal crisis. Teachers were leaving for the suburbs because they couldn't afford to make thirty something thousand a year and raise a family in New York. And ultimately, what Mike Bloomberg uh, started to understand was that it was better 
to actually try to figure out how to work together than keep on having these public fights. Hmm. Because the public hmm. fights actually only undermined people's confidence in the public school system. How did you help Mike Bloomberg to come to an understanding as such? How did you push Mike Bloomberg along the way? You because, specifically, Randy Weingarten. Because I never gave up on him. Hmm. That is not the answer I expected. It's <laughs> not. Help me to see what you mean. Give me an example. He was, he was the mayor of the city of New York. Mm-hmm. He, at the end of the day, wanted kids to achieve. But he started as a business leader in um, an environment where he didn't really have to rely on the good work of workers to actually make him look good. He relied on technology. He created a technology company that then became bigger and bigger around the sales of that technology. Mm-hmm. You know, the work we do mm-hmm. is, is we do people work. And people work requires you to have the, listen to the voice and agency and give the people the tools and the trust that they need and the time to do their jobs. And so his, his vantage point about how to do the work of teaching and learning came from the way in which you know, he became successful. And my vantage point was to try to explain to him that that's not the way education works and that if you want education to be successful, you have to find a way to empower teachers and give them the tools and conditions they need to be successful. Mm, I can I can imagine these conversations. Yes. You're like, hey, Mr. Technologist who who's used to computers working efficiently. <laughs> we humans don't work that way, and you can't villainize the teachers because they're actually your workforce. They're the bloodline to the parents, and really their interests in yours are not in opposition. Were you schooling right. him in that way, or am I putting words in your mouth? I mean, to, you know, I, I would never be rude or to oh, I didn't think I was rude just now. No, I mean, <laughs> I would never be sarcastic mm. about the machines as much <laughs> as I wanted to be sometimes. But, you know, over the course of time, we also developed a, a respect for each other. And there were some of the conversations were terrible. You know, there were some of the conversations where, you know, he would just be completely closed. And over time... We developed a decent relationship with each other where we hurt each other. I desperately need an example here. Well, I remember having breakfast with him once. I think it was 2005. He was basically coasting to re-election. Mm-hmm. And um, I said, look, people are really unhappy. And, you know, you may have a work stoppage on your hands. And he just looked at me and he scoffed. And he said, oh, you're never going to strike. There's never going to be a strike from your members. Um, And then he said something like, and we've done some polling. We know there's never going to be a strike from your members. (laughs) And I'm sitting there kind of listening to the arrogance of him thinking he knew my members better than I knew my members. Hmm. So that was one conversation that went very, you know, very bad, very quickly. In reality, Randy Weingarten had ads ready and a rally planned at Madison Square Garden to show Bloomberg we teachers have solidarity. Mayor Bloomberg, let's be honest. If you really if you mess with us, we can play ball. You'll work with teachers and parents and stop playing politics with our schools. 
But this is key. The union did not have to go on strike, which would have been very hard on students and potentially self-destructive. The public would judge teachers for shutting down schools. Randy and the mayor worked out what many called a historic deal. Big pay raises of 16 to 22 percent in one contract negotiation for teachers. And in exchange, they'd work slightly longer days. Also, it would become easier to fire teachers despite tenure. Qualified teachers began flocking to New York City to apply for jobs. Weingarten and Bloomberg started having breakfast more often, she says, maybe four or six times a year. And we'd always go to the same uh, little restaurant. And I knew that, you know, there was a better relationship when we started eating out of my plate, <laughs> which oh, I wow. used to. Yeah, he just took his fork in there? Yeah, yeah, oh, wow. which I used to. So I knew that there was a better relationship at that point. Mm-hmm. I think what happened was Mike Bloomberg understood that if he wanted to be a successful mayor in the city of New York, mm-hmm. he needed the teachers um, to have high morale. He needed mm-hmm. the teachers to uh, have a sense of accomplishment and a sense of mission and and and, and instead of everything being anger, anger, anger about what Joe Klein was doing or what he was doing, that we needed to be aligned in ways. And that's part of the reason that we got to a third contract early on. Randy Weingarten points out the contract is not all that changed. There was also a perspective shift. Mike Bloomberg looks at life through winning and losing. I look at life through how do we actually um, make things better for people? So I don't look at it as much as a zero sum. And so it became the conversations about how do we stop having these constant fights, these constant confrontations, and is there a way that we can actually move together um, to make uh, the schools the best they can be for the kids and to have teachers feel good about what they were doing. And I constantly um, had as my North Star that we wanted every single public school to be a place where parents wanted to send their kids, educators wanted to teach, and, and, and kids learned. And instead of having constant fights with us, which we were prepared to do, that it was better if we worked together. And to just help me to understand this, because you're describing... A very powerful man, capital P, also independently very wealthy, with a worldview that is in conflict with your worldview. And the way that you get him to talk more your language, to adopt more your worldview, it's that you're making credible threats. Is that right? Is that a key part of this? It's not just that we're making credible threats. But is that part of it? Well, it's that we won the hearts and minds of people in New York Mm. City. So mm-hmm. it may not have been the editorial page of the New York Post mm-hmm. or the editorial page of the New York Times, but the, the people in New York who sent their kids to public schools, who wanted the public schools to work, they and teachers were more unified than was the mayor. The ground game was real, 
and it, mm. it, it was authentic and it came from the work and the relationships that teachers had with their kids and their families and the union had real community relationships. It sounds like part of what you're doing is fact-checking the very way I was framing the conversation when I first approached you about it, which (laughs) is to say, you want to frame this like there was this loss in labor and teachers lost their tenure because, you know, the powers that be decided they didn't deserve it. But actually what happened is we just negotiated a more fair process and my base got a more than 40% increase in salary. And we made the schools better, which is what he wanted Mm -hmm. and we wanted. Mm -hmm. And we focused more on what was important for kids and for learning. So it's not, you know, I prefer to think about it as a win-win. But we started from very, very different places where they thought that the way in which they would run the schools was, you know, just basically to dictate from on high. And we basically said... It's collaboration, baby. I like you threw in baby. <laughs> I feel like, but, I feel but, like I'm but, starting to hear how you actually talk in meetings. <laughs> but, but, Artie, that's the same as what you asked me earlier in terms of, you know, in these moments of time yeah. when you could be scared of somebody else's power or you mm. could just move through it and you mm. could just say, okay, what do we need to do? What's the objective? What's the goal? Are people mm. with you? Will can, do you have the sense of self to be able to move through what may look like a really daunting situation? Hmm. And you asked me that at the beginning and now at the end. And yeah, he was the richest man in the world and he was the mayor of the city of New York. But the power ground up, the power of people working together with the same goal Mm-hmm. That's collective power. That's mm-hmm. pretty important to change hearts yeah. and minds in the narrative. What did you learn about how power works that you didn't know before? You have to engage with people. You have to engage. Mm-hmm. And you have to meet people where they are. And you have to understand it. Mm-hmm. You can't talk past each other. And and it may not be possible with everyone. I mean... Look, the country is in, you have extremes in the country right now. So mm. it's not, it's not, I don't look at this to say it's possible everywhere, but that engagement instead, mm. of, instead of just spitting on people, that kind of trying to break bread, you stay with your values, but you see if you can find common ground. That frankly is the story of America. And that's the story of a labor movement having some power to be able to sit at a table with the power elite. I have to say, Randy, something I I love about how this story ends with what you've just described as the power elite, uh, the the Mayor Mike Bloomberg's of the world. I love that fast forward a few years after you guys are at each other's throats, uh, you and he actually write an op-ed together calling for teachers around the country to be paid more money. Exactly. (laughs) In the middle of the teacher strikes. Exactly right. Did he write it or did you? Um, We both did. Well, we, his staff and me, we both did. I see. It wasn't over like a plate of shared pasta. No. (laughs) My lessons from Randy Weingarten. One, 
Even if you're a private person, do not forget the power of a story. Your story, shared generously or discreetly, can uplift others. Two, know your non-negotiables and don't trade them up for a perceived powerful position. Not everything in life is up for negotiation. Three, disagreements are part of any relationship. To create value, let the small stuff slide and keep coming back to the table. This episode of Art of Power was produced by Hina Srivastava, Justin Bull, and me, Arthi Shahani. Our intern is Paloma Moreno-Jimenez. Our executive producer is Kevin Dawson. Special thanks to Stephen Greenhouse, longtime labor journalist and author of Beaten Down, Worked Up, The Past, Present, and Future of American Labor. Great read. If this episode landed for you, hit subscribe. Leave us a written review on Apple Podcasts. Tell your friends and family. Referrals keep us going. Let me know what you think. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Arthi411. You can also text me, 917-708-5139. See you next week.